especially because my mother loves his Facebook page and will send me lots and lots of George Takei. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. The glitz, the glamour, the outfits, the shoes, the accessories, the upsets, and the upstarts. Today on Keep It Fictional, we are, of course, talking about the wild, wacky, turbulent world of literary awards. Oh, you thought literary awards were some stodgy, boring committee work? Oh, no. Literary awards are where the drama lives. Today on Keep It Fictional, I am joined today by my book friends, Virginia, Fiona, and Gabriel, as we discuss some of our favorite book award winners. Now, of course, there is a multitude of book awards for any flavor or genre of book that you might like. If you're a mystery reader, you might like the Edgar Awards, named after Edgar Allan Poe. If you're a Canadianophile, like Fiona, you might be into the Giller or the Governor General Awards. If you're a kids library enthusiast, it might be the Newbery Award. If you really, really love fantasy, you might be looking at the Nebulas, the Hugos, the James Tripchies. If you're into serious things, it might be the Pulitzer. But of all the literary awards, I think I have some very definite favorites that every year I make sure to look up and see who has won. One of them is the Weird Ass Picture Book Award given by two children to the picture book with the weirdest title. Some of the winners being Cowboy and Octopus and the seminal classic, The Boy with Two Belly Buttons. There is also the Diagram Prize for the oddest title, some of which have included Oral Sadism and the Vegetarian Personality, the Big Book of Lesbian Horse Stories, and How Tea Cozies Changed the World. However, the award that definitely has my heart that I look forward to every year is unfortunately canceled, but you can go and look through the archives of it. It is the Bad Sex in Fiction Awards given out by the Literary Review, where they go through all of the um, offerings of carnal pleasures in the literary world and pick out some of the very choice descriptions of different things. Some of my recent favorites being from The Electric Hotel by Dominic Smith, where um, the act of such things was described as a series of cryptic clues, which kind of speaks perhaps more to the person performing it than the actual reality. And um, from poor Elizabeth Gilbert, City of Girls, described it as, as if I was being run over by a train, which I don't see as maybe a pleasurable experience, but I haven't read the book, so I can't comment. Any further quotes are absolutely not appropriate for me to be saying in a workplace setting, but I absolutely suggest that you go out and find these gems, gems of a writing. So I have to ask my book friends today, do you have a particular favorite literary award that you always look forward to or that you always make sure to check when the winners are announced? Let's start with uh, Virginia. I don't know if I have a specific favorite, but probably some of the science fiction ones, I would say. Uh, lately, 
I've discovered that I really enjoy a lot of the Arthur C. Clarke Award winners. I don't know why. Um, they're all a little weird, a little strange. It's just they're science fiction, but also have like really bizarre things in it. So I feel like that's kind of lately what I I've been looking to see what other books have won that award previously and trying to check those out. So yeah, of course, like my favorite now is the National Book Award because Charles Yu won, so it became my favorite just because of that. But other than that. I don't know. Like, I feel like for a lot of these awards, generally, like, I'm more like, that's not what should win. You know, like, that's kind of what my feeling usually is. So I look for them so that I can be like that. No, something else is better. That's usually what what I look for the award list for. So that's fair. I think every year when uh, the Newberry and Caldecott are awarded, we always have a, shall we say, robust discussion about their choices. Yes, and it is done by committee and every committee is influenced by the people and personalities on it or different forces in that year. But sometimes, you know, when you see something that you would consider a lot better and something else wins the award, it's a little galling, shall we say. And you really want to go up to each of the committee members and be like, so like, take me through this. Walk me through why that is a good book. But yes, the National Book Award, uh, which when we're talking about national, it's the United States. They have categories for fiction, nonfiction, uh, young adult, writing for children, poetry, and they are always great choices. As Virginia mentioned, Interior Chinatown, a masterful, masterful book. And they they always choose something that you can really chew on something, a book that is really worthy of an award, because of course, with awards come money, with awards come recognition. So they kind of lift these books up and they always do really interesting choices. All right, Fiona, what about you? What are, What's the award that you look forward to? I'm a little bit aloof when it comes to awards. I've started to pay attention a lot to the Audis, which are for audiobooks. You know, I drone on and on about how great audiobooks are. And it is cool um, to see it. It's, you know, they do it specifically for the audiobook edition. So uh, it's not about the written one, but about about production. And there's different categories in that. Um, but Hugo Award and the Caldecott Award hold a lot of weight for me. Again, like not I'm not necessarily like versed, but I see it and I'm like, oh, yeah, yep, that's a good book. I see that little that little sticker and um, and I pick it up. Nice. And again, you bring up a really important point that the it, they're like audiobook and reading an audiobook is an art form unto itself. It is it is not just reading the book. It is an entire performance. So, okay, I'll maybe in my slow toe dipping into audiobooks, maybe I will try giving one of those award winners a try when I have a spare 17 hours on my hands. All right. Next up, Gabriel, what about you? Is there an award that you always pay attention to? Well, I thank you for phrasing it like that, Corrine. I would say the video game awards because I get something out of the winner. When the video game awards come out, the game of the year will give you all of the downloadable content that came out through the year for a pretty good price. The book awards really give nothing to me. In fact, I would say that usually it's actually a little bit annoying to me to um, walk in potentially consider purchasing a book and half the title is taken up by this thing that they decided to put on it that says winner of this or now a major motion picture and I'm like there was art here there was art and now it's gone so generally speaking I would say I do not pay attention to book awards I understand their purpose and I understand why they are useful really have not even looked at what they are meant for until this particular podcast episode I I suppose I sometimes look at things like Stonewall but Really didn't know anything about them. Don't even follow. I'm also a big movie fan. Don't even follow things like the Oscars. But the video game awards, they give something to me. 
they give something to me and then I get to feel um, superior online when I talk to other people. So I think maybe if I can start incorporating that into my discussions with other people of, I would say, quality, like literary taste, maybe then I can have something under my belt, especially because I only really started reading regularly when we started doing this podcast. So, you know, anything that helps me feel a little bit more connected to the community and like, I'm not just secretly also continuing the Thrawn books in the background and I'm actually like, you know, branching out into things of quality. I think that's good. So I might start paying attention to some literary awards, but really, I think if they could maybe give me like an extra chapter or something, once the literary award for the book comes out, then maybe I'll take it a little more seriously. So thank you for that question, Corey. And thank you for your refreshing honesty. I also love that you object to book awards on an aesthetic level. (laughs) And it just messes with the cover aesthetic. So very unnecessary, very unnecessary. All right. Well, knowing all of this, that we have some people that follow awards and some people that don't, I am very excited to see what everyone chose as their award-winning book. So we left the field totally open. You could choose any award. And as we have mentioned, there are a multitude of awards for almost anything, but only some of them can be winners and the rest of them are losers. So I am very curious to see what awards you chose and what book you are going to be talking about. And why don't we go over to start with Fiona? My award requires some preamble. I actually chose a smaller award, which was an interesting kind of dive into like, you know, I looked at all the Pulitzers and and all these things and like nothing super grabbed me. But of course, I saw a book that I was interested in and saw a nice little sticker on it. I was like, I will learn about that. So that brought me to an American award the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. And this is an award for up-and-coming Black authors in the States. And, you know, it kind of gave me a little, like, thinking, like, oh, well, you know, what what does it mean to get one of these little awards? Why do they exist? And like Kareen brought up beforehand, there are often cash prizes involved, which of course helps that author to continue their craft. Uh, So this one comes with a $15,000 award and it brings you into a community of other winners and has a board who supports you. So it was kind of cool to learn about a, a new award that I had never heard of before and it caused me to look up all the previous winners and I think that I will go back and read some because I really loved this debut novel by Nathan Harris, which won the Ernest J. Gaines Award, but was also on Oprah's top picks, as well as Obama's reading list. And then it was longlisted for many of the larger awards. This is The Sweetness of Water which is a historical fiction set during emancipation. So I was a little bit trepidatious because I love historical fiction, but civil war is not something I know about or really care about that much. And I also uh, sort of prefer to read historical fiction about women. And this one centers men. But after a few chapters, I was really, really engaged. It's a fairly linear narrative And I would definitely recommend it to uh, people who enjoy classics. So it sort of gives a new perspective on some of the classics that you might have enjoyed. Harper Lee or Steinbeck. Uh, It really has that feeling. But of course, 
is uh, is new and fresh. So I think it it really adds a lot uh, to the literary scene, and I'm glad that it won this award. So this book follows George, who is a wealthy white landowner in Georgia. He has recently heard the news that his son died in combat before the war was over and not necessarily in very good circumstances. He has come out as a little bit of a coward. So while George is processing this, realizing that he's going to have to tell his wife, he goes out onto his property and he meets two men. They are a pair of black brothers who have recently been emancipated from the the farm uh, property next door. They are Prentice and Landry. And George just completely upset and and stuck in how he's going to tell his wife about his son's death, sees a piece of his son in Prentice, and they form a quick bond. Prentice and Landry are uh, very excited to take on the world. They can go anywhere. They can do anything. But they also don't have any resources. So they strike up a deal. Um, Sort of on a whim, George decides he needs a distraction, and he's going to start a peanut farm. George is a really interesting character. He's an older man, and the suggestion is that his father owned slaves, but George himself does not own slaves. But he's also in this position where he he never needed them. He's so wealthy, he can sort of just laze around, uh, and he never farmed because he didn't really have to. And then he decides, you know what, I'd like to. I I need something to do with my life. I need to make something. I've lost my son. Let's start farming. And he asks Prentice and Landry to help him do that at a very good wage, uh, one that would be that would be equal to what a white man would get. George is a really sympathetic and interesting character. He is sensitive and delicate in ways that don't really fit with society. But I think what the narrative really asks about his character uh, is he's, he's got this internal sense of justice and rightness, but he's also very naive, believing that others around him feel the same way. And I think uh, what the book is really asking is, is that enough? Is it enough to stand up without understanding the climate that you are in? Or like in this narrative, do you just end up putting people in danger because you, you don't consider the effects of how everyone is going to interpret this sort of, he takes um, these brothers under his wing, but he doesn't consider the danger that that puts them in. Uh, he actually becomes ostracized by the community. Prentice and Landry are wonderful characters. Landry is uh, mute due to trauma, and he's sort of seen as a child by others, but in his internal monologue, we we come to understand that there's a lot more going on with him. Um, he's a really beautiful soul and is kind of the foundation of his brother Prentice's life. Prentice has spent his whole life looking after Landry, and Landry sort of in the narrative plays this role of, for the white characters, he's someone to go to someone they talk to without con- because he doesn't speak without considering you know what he is feeling or whether he wants to be talked to and prentice on is the complete opposite he is uh, has so much self determination and they sort of play these two sides of the same coin prentice is is determined and 
it will stop at nothing to to find success. Um, but he's also very upright and a good worker and draws respect from people around him. There is also Isabel, George's wife, who is described as a fierce woman. And I really, I don't have, I really like reading about marriage. I don't know. It's something that really interests me. And George and Isabel have a very interesting marriage, very interesting Southern marriage where they, they have deep respect and love for each other, but all of these things that come between them. And there's always this sort of rift of communication. And it's interesting to see, uh, like I said, I prefer to read about women in historical fiction. And so to get a little bit of that, how, how this, these incidents are affecting Isabel and her place in society. Uh, there's all sorts of um, interesting characters in the town as well, um, leaning from sympathetic to horrible. And then we also have a pair of Confederate soldiers who are lovers. And August has quite a bit more power than Caleb. Caleb, who sort of follows around at his heels like a dog. And August is this volatile character who is who is quite quite scary uh, and realistic because at moments he's very sympathetic uh, you can see the love between him and Caleb and then at a moment's notice he'll turn around and and is very manipulative so all of this comes together in a narrative that just asks a lot about society and feels very present and potent at this this moment, like I said, I don't necessarily have much of an interest in the the American Civil War, but it was really valuable for me to to be walked through some of it uh, and to understand, to have that moment of realizing that emancipation would be a huge celebration. To then realize that you have nothing, you have no resources, and you go to in towns where you are shut out because even though uh, it's now illegal to enslave people, it doesn't mean that you are going to be met with kindness. So it was, yeah, I think it's a really, really valuable read. And if you're someone like me who maybe is trying to grasp um, the, the American Civil War, it is definitely a great place to start because it, it has sort of an easy to follow narrative with deep characters and deep thoughts. Highly recommended. And go ahead and check out the other winners of the Ernest J. Gaines Literary Award. I will be following it in the future. Fantastic. Thank you, Fiona. I love that you chose a, a kind of like a, a lesser known award to highlight. Awesome. All right. Gabriel, you had to chose, choose a book award. Which one did you choose? I think that my experience both choosing a book and then finding a book is a little bit similar to Fiona's. Started out, I was like, kind of like Stonewall, kind of care about Stonewall, looked at the options, looked at the waiting list on some of them, looked at what was left, went, no, no, not this week. And then I just sort of set about finding a book that I wanted to read that happened to have an award attached to it. So the book that I chose is... They Called Us Enemy by George Decay and Justin Isinger, Stephen Scott with the art by Harmony Becker, because it is a graphic novel. So this book won a few different awards. I think the most prominent of the awards that it won was the American Book Awards. And if folks don't know what the American Book Awards, they're books that are supposed to represent American literary community at, as a whole. 
It's also a sort of odd book award in the sense that it's kind of authors supporting other authors. And the process for picking them is mostly just that everything's accepted. It's just kind of like a you win if a bunch of other authors are saying, hey, this one's really good. And so it's less about panels, I would say, and more about the literary community. And so they called us Enemy One in 2020. And it won a few other awards. One of them is the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics. And Harmony Becker's Art also won the Divisional Rubin Award for Excellence in the Field of Graphic Novels from the National Cartoonist Society. So They Called Us Enemy follows the story of George Takei's family as they are uprooted from their life after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The U.S. government declared war on Japan and decreed that all people of Japanese descent living in America were enemy aliens. So they were taken from their homes, forced to give up all their possessions and savings, and had to travel great distances in unsanitary and inhumane conditions to reside in what at the time would have been called internment camps. These camps were fenced in with barbed wire, they were cramped, they were patrolled by men with guns. George Takei was four when he, his parents, his sister, his brother, uh, were taken from their two-bedroom home in Los Angeles and packed onto a train where his father told him they were going on vacation. The love that his parents have for their children is really clearly shown in the in the book, especially because of how well they sort of managed to shelter George and his brother and his sister as well, but his sister was quite young when it was happening. So mostly George and his brother from the truth of the situation. He assumes that the tags meant to keep track of the members of his family are just train tickets. He thinks it's normal to pull down the blinds on the windows when the train passes through a town. And he doesn't quite understand why the people around him seem to be crying. The journey is explored through the perspective of like this very positive and hopeful but naive child as well as the grown man who understands the injustices that he experienced looking back on the journey. It shows the roots of trauma that a lot of many Japanese Americans who went through this process share, but it doesn't, I would say maybe because of the the context and the way that it was written, it doesn't really delve too deeply. It sort of shows what was happening, but because it is George Takei's story in particular, and he had a very, he, he had a very different experience than maybe his father would have going through it. Eventually, the Takei family are allowed to leave the internment camp with other families after the war. I would say a, a lot of this I wouldn't consider spoilers because uh, in the same way as like Fiona's story, it is something that really delves into a particular historical period. So some of this would you would just sort of know happens in a general sense if you know anything about uh, Japanese internment. So they, they struggle as they're released into society after having been subject to horrible living conditions and stripped of their resources. And the after portion does include meeting some important figures in Takei's life, and as well as important historical figures, including him meeting Gene Roddenberry and his role on Star Trek as Hikaru Zulu. The graphic novel really explores like a lot of the conversations that George Takei had with his father, actually, which I thought was really interesting. Um, as they kind of unpack that shared experience and start to really understand what that meant for how the two of them understand what happened to them, but also how they understand America. 
George and his brother Henry were both named after British kings. It, it, it's really interesting to see, even as an adult, and like the absolute anguish that his father would have gone through, the way that he sort of makes sense of his world and the way that that influences and then changes the way that George Takei perceives what happened and the way that he wants to tell his story. In part, it's also set across the backdrop of the civil rights movement and fights for racial justice and legal change for Black Americans. And ultimately, I would say it's interesting to see how that kind of influences Takei and his father. They're both deeply strong, deeply hopeful men. And I think, though, it's interesting because I I would say one of the arguments that the book kind of makes is that positive change is possible, especially um, coming from the perspective of someone who this would have been the 40s when they were in the internment camps and then lived through quite a long period. I believe George Takei is still with us. So especially because my mother loves his Facebook page and will send me lots and lots of George Takei quotes. So as far as I know, he's still good. So the graphic novel came out in 2019 before COVID came into our lives, but I think the message is really one that gained a lot of renewed importance during the pandemic. It's not a secret that anti-Asian racism had an extreme uptick. And this is really just a true story about what happens when we blame events on people that had nothing to do with them. It's relevant now that we come to terms with the racism of our past and present and understand that the hurt we've caused communities of people who deserve far better apologies than they've ever received as we start to understand that, as we start to, like Fiona said, understand that big moments don't always mean immediate change and that there's a lot of invisible barriers that people still face even after uh, maybe they received, in this case, Takei's family received some compensation from the U.S. government, I believe in the Obama administration, but that's not going to undo generations of trauma. Uh, That's not going to undo a lot of the problems that this caused. I think it's a really good book for anyone who's coming into the topic fresh, as this is really more focused on the history, it felt like, um, than Takei's personal experience. It almost felt a little bit separated in the sense that it was a really, it was a really good way of looking at the, the actual experience of what a family would have gone through as they were transported to an internment camp, as they were living in one, and then as they were allowed out afterwards. And then Takei's sort of philosophy, there wasn't a ton, I think, because of the format of sort of overlap, because he really was experiencing it as a child. And so his conversations about sort of the nature of the world, while they are a narration, they're not, the book doesn't really try to combine them, possibly. I think because of the fact that a lot of this is taken from speeches that George Takei has made. So he made um, a couple speeches One's a TED Talk. So you could, so that's another option. If you'd like the story of the book, you could just listen to George Takei tell it. Although Harmony Becker does some great illustrations. So I would say graphic novel's still worth it. The the other speech that it kind of taps into is the speech that he gave at FDR's house slash museum, which of course is a very interesting, would have been a very interesting and probably deeply emotional experience for him as FDR was the person who ordered the internment camps. And so there would be a lot of tension there. And I would say because of the fact that some of it is a little bit removed from the like deep emotional perspective, it didn't necessarily bring any information 
to me, who was already familiar with this particular atrocity, it's something that I had encountered just in historical studies and encountered both in an American sense and in a Canadian sense, because of course we also had, um, they weren't exactly the same, but we had a very similar um, style of camp. They involved uh, ghost towns primarily, I think. It's also a very pro-American story, (laughs) even after discussing all the horrible things that they did to the community, which is interesting. But again, ultimately George Takei's story and his beliefs and his experiences. And I think it's sort of an interesting form of storytelling. It would have been different if it was intended to be a graphic novel from the start, as opposed to taking um, sort of the narration from these speeches, but I would say that it is an accessible piece of literature for someone who wanted to know more and doesn't know where to start or had never even heard of this before. Definitely not something that Canada likes to talk about. And yeah, so if you're maybe an audiobook fan, this isn't necessarily something that would have an audiobook, but it is based off speeches. So you could always listen to that. If you were interested in the Canadian perspective of Japanese internment, one really, really interesting and I would say very difficult emotionally, but important, but it's still very important person to listen to would be David Suzuki. David Suzuki has a few excerpts. I believe they're kept by library and archives Canada, as well as a few other places um, where he talks about his experience as um, a th- I believe he's third generation Japanese Canadian who had to go through similar processes, but had a very different experience than George Takei, who was sort of seeing it with a little bit of rose-colored glasses as a kid, versus David Suzuki endured um, incredible, incredible strain, even at the time. Which, not that George Takei did, that David Suzuki was aware that he was in pain at the time. So really, really, I think, important story. I did like it quite a bit. I don't think that I necessarily learned anything new other than the experience of George Decay, but that depends on why you want to look into a story like it. So I would definitely recommend it. If you're maybe an audiobook person, like I said, you could listen to it. They called us enemy. Perfect. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Yeah. And if you're interested in another graphic novel on the same subject, I believe Liz talked about Displacement by Kiku Hughes. Uh, oh no, sorry, it was Fiona. It was Fiona talked about it, um, which is another really excellent graphic novel. Um, if you're interested in another Canadian perspective, of course, we have to mention Obasan by Joe, uh, Joy Kagawa, who is a Vancouver author who has written kind of like the seminal book Obasan and the rest of her her work is incredible and powerful. And maybe it was Liz that talked about We Are Not Free by Tracy Chi, or maybe just Liz and I talked about that book, um, which was another recent book that that was fantastic. And all award winners, all award winners. That's the wonderful thing about awards is that they kind of lead you to different, different books once you get interested in them. All right, Virginia, 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 what award did you choose? And what book will you be gracing us with? Well, definitely taking a completely different turn um, from in terms of subject and also the kind of award that I have. 
feel like I need to represent a science fiction fantasy horror award, of course, I have chosen the Locus Award. And I chose this one because it's an annual award that is given to the best in the genre, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The best novel, best novella, best first novel, best short story, best anthology, best editor, best publisher, and so on and so forth. And it is a Reader's Choice Award, so it's voted by the readers of the amazing, amazing essential to all genre readers magazine, The Locust Magazine. And this is actually the only magazine that I still subscribe to in paper because I do want to support them. So this is kind of more like a shout out for them. You can read a lot of the articles online, their book reviews. So if you are interested to learn more about like titles that may you may not have heard of, this is a great source for that. But in the magazines themselves also have a lot of other cover stories that has to do with sort of that science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. Um, so for anyone who loves those genres, I would highly, highly recommend you to check out at least their website, if not their magazines. I know this is like a total coincidence, but I feel like when I subscribed to the magazine, the first issue I got, it was just personalized for me because it was actually a child's new cover story. So I feel like very special. And then after that, I got a TJ Kuhn issue. So I just felt like they did this for me, even though I'm sure they didn't. But I just felt very special getting like, you know, two of my favorites on the magazine cover stories. But anyway, so the book that I chose for today, I feel like it's been a long time since I talk about a fantasy book, which is just very, very weird. This book definitely reminds me of why I love reading fantasy. It won the best first novel in 2013 for the Locus Award. It is also a finalist for the Hugo and also the Nebula Award. So the book is From of the Crescent Moon by Saladin Ahmad. This is published in 2012. And on the cover, it said that it is book one of the Crescent Moon Kingdoms. It's been 10 years. Uh, there is no book two. <laughs> there is no book two yet. And according to the author, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Maybe there will be one sometime in the next decade. But we, he doesn't know. He doesn't know whether this is going to come out or not. So I would say read it as a standalone for now. Just assume that there's no other book. And the story does wrap up in the end. So even though it is allegedly a series, you can probably read it just on its own. And it's not like you're stuck with a cliffhanger. So at least there's that. If you are a fan of comics, you'll probably recognize the name of Saladin Ahmad. He is the author and the writer for many of these Spider-Man, Mouse, Morales comics, also the Miss Marvel comics. So that might be where you have heard his name before. And it seems like that's where he's focusing on his career on right now. But this is an amazing fantasy novel. And I really hope one day we'll see something else from him. So this is a classic sword and sorcery kind of tale that are set in the Middle East. So back in 2012, I'm sure it is a very refreshing take on the whole genre, given that a lot of the books that we have had is all very centered on sort of a Western mythology, whereas this is completely different. So our story featured Dr. Adula Maxlude, and he's not a doctor of medicine, but he is a ghoul hunter. In this world, there are many kinds of ghouls. They are all created by the bad mages who wanted the ghouls to do their bidding. And these ghouls could be made from many different things like bones or sand and the skin. Skin ghouls, especially terrifying. And they are all animated by blood magic from these mages. They're kind of like 
zombies, but a lot smarter and a lot faster and a lot more terrifying. Dr. Adula is one of the very few people left, kind of last of his kind, that has the training to fight and destroy these ghouls. It's a bit of a lost art. And Adula knows that he should really train up the next generation, get somebody else to take over. But he's reluctant to do so because he feels really bad about condemning someone to the kind of fate, to the kind of life that he has. Because it's not a fun life. It is also super dangerous. And he just feels bad about asking someone else to take up this job. But he's getting old. He knows it. He, he knows he's getting old. He is like always talking about how he's out of shape. The last time when he has to fight a ghoul, give it one for his assistant, Razid, who just like swoop in right in the nick of time and save him from the ghoul as he lie there like after wielding this magic and he just couldn't like fight and couldn't like even get up. Give it one for his assistant to come in and save him. He would have been dead. And so he knows, he knows it is time that he needs to pass this on to someone else. And all he wants to do is retire so that he can sit like he's doing right now at his old friend Yaya's tea shop, sipping sweet cardamom tea, watching the bustling scene of his favorite city, and just talk about nothing, make fun of each other with his old friend, and just relax. That's, that's all he wants to do. But of course, He's not allowed to do that just yet. For he sees his assistant, Razi, coming over with a boy. A boy that you can tell is in shock. And Razi told him that the boy has just watched his parents killed by ghouls. And as he's trying to piece together this story from the boy's account, it sounds like these are not your usual kind of ghouls. They seem a little more scary and dangerous because the way the boy described it, it almost sounds like these ghouls are tearing out the souls from the people, ripping apart the essence of people. And Adula knows that this must be the work of the fallen angel. And so he's now tasked to track and hunt down the ghouls before they could kill again. And what begins as another seemingly regular ghoul hunting job gets much, much darker than that. And it is, in fact, the beginning of a plot to take over his city and take over the throne of the Crescent Moon Kingdom. And all of that against the backdrop of a brewing civil war because we have the caliphs who are in power right now. They are corrupted. All they care about is lining their own pockets. So they torture and they abuse the citizens. And the people are fed up, fed up with the, those in power. And so they're looking towards this other alternative, the Falcon Prince, sort of like a Robin Hood kind of figure, robbed from the riches to give to the poor. And so they're all kind of looking towards this, maybe it is time for someone else to take over. So there's like this civil war brewing. And now on top of that, there are these ghouls. Now, this is a really, I, I think it's such a fun fantasy. It is a fast-paced, capital A adventure kind of story. So if you're looking for just something to escape to, where there's magic, there's ghouls, there's like these secret codes that can topple an empire. There's like mysteriously shadow monsters. There's a girl who is hellbent on revenge that can shapeshift into a lion. If you're just looking for all that fun adventure stuff, 
this is this is it. I would highly recommend this. But of course, a good plot also has to be anchored by a great cast of characters. And what I love about this is that you got the protagonists. They are like aging protagonists, which is a little different from what you normally get from a fantasy. These are people that have done it already, and now they are ready to retire. They're ready to get out of here. And They're not quite cut off for the job anymore. They get really tired. They get out of breath whenever they have to chase down a ghoul. They're not quite equipped to deal with all the terrors of the world anymore. But yet they're still stuck because they're still the job and they still have to do it. Um, I also like sort of that difference between Adula, who is this like really jovial uncle who like jokes around, who doesn't seem to take anything seriously, even though you know that he cares, cares deeply, not just about the people and his friends, but also the city that he loves in. He loves the city and he would do anything to protect it. But he's just always joking around. And that sort of is a good foil for his assistant, a dervish, Rasid, who is serious, who is uptight, who just know how to follow the rule. He has no idea how to do, deal with the real world, deal with like feelings and emotions. He seems like he has none of those. It's like he doesn't understand gray area. Everything's just black and white for him. And he reminds me very much of a lot of the heroes in a lot of the Chinese martial arts novels. They're also very like, they're just so like, tunnel vision. This is the right thing to do. And they're all for like fighting for justice and they just ignore everything. And they look so silly sometimes because they have this one track mind. And of course, throughout the story, he's going to have to develop a little bit to realize that not everything in the world is black and white. Along with Adula, he also ended up teaming up with his old friends, the Wood and the Tess, also an older couple and again, aging heroes. And it's really interesting how in a lot of the books, it's not just like these people going, oh, let's go fight these ghouls. They're like very much like, oh yeah, but do I have to do it? Do I have, does it have to be me again? Like, why can't it be someone else? And they have different priorities now because they are older. And so for them, it's more important that they protect the family. They don't want each other to get hurt. They know how much magic is taking a toll on all of them whenever they have to use it to fight the ghouls. So they're, they're thinking about other things. There's other priorities in mind. And so it's kind of interesting to see that being explored rather than just like these heroes and these heroines who are just like fighting everything and they have all the energy in the world. This is, this is not like that uh, with these protagonists. So it was kind of fun to have that. So if you're looking for just a fun fantasy, just something action-packed, it doesn't have to like think too much about it. I think this is a really, really fun adventure. So this is Saladin Ahmed, Throne of the Crescent Moon. Fantastic. Fantastic. I, I really like his comics. I think he's a he's a great comic writer. But again, 10 years is a long time to wait for that second book. Long time. All right. Well, weirdly enough, uh, Virginia, we are going to be talking about the same award. But my book actually has just won all the awards. So it kind of makes sense. My book had won the Hugo, the Nebula, a Lotus Award, an ALA Alex Award, and any award that it didn't win, it was definitely nominated for. So yes, I am going to talk about a science fiction and fantasy book. Very strange, but I know that this is actually one that Virginia hated. So we're still okay. The universe is still correct. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. Because even though it is a genre that we that we sometimes coexist on. It is a book that I know she hated and I really loved. So sometimes 
children fall into rabbit holes. Sometimes children and their little dogs are picked up by tornadoes and transported into fantastical lands. Sometimes they might fall down an old well or go through a wardrobe and find themselves in a magical land that needs them. Those children are the chosen ones, the champion, the golden child, the the one person who can right everything wrong with a magical fairyland. But what happens when that child defeats the evil lord? Banishes the wrongdoers, cleanses the land, good and righteousness reigns again, everything is set right. What use does a magical land have for a child that has been used up? What is the purpose of a chosen one when they have served their purpose? The door that opened to that miracle child, the child that was needed for a specific purpose, that was chosen from amongst all the children out there, when that door opens to their fairy land and they step through it, the door opens again to send them back. And for some children, this is a blessing. For some children, their time in this fairy land has been awful and has demanded so much from them and blood has been shed or sacrifices have been made that going home is the reward that they wanted. For other children, after they complete their quest, they really have nowhere to go. They might be outsiders in their own family. They might be misunderstood. Why would they want to go back to a world that doesn't understand them and doesn't want them? And whether they want to or not, after they step through that doorway into the mundane world again, they have been changed. They have been altered or touched by their experience. They might be in the body of a child, but they have experienced things beyond most adults can. And so where do they go? Well, most of them end up at Eleanor West's home for wayward children. A beautiful ramshackle mansion that has a little sign on the door that says, no solicitations, no visitors, no quests. And so many of these children from these stories come to this place to try and heal, to find each other and talk about their experiences with the only other people in the entire world that understand them, the people that have been through this before. There are children like Nancy who longs to be silent and still and gray, who disappeared from her parents' colorful world into a underground land of the dead inspired by Hades and Persephone. Or for Cade, who was put into a land of goblins and fairies and adventures. Or Jack and Jill, who ended up in a very dark world indeed, full of vampires and werewolves and mad scientists. All of these children have lived this other life and have been brought back most unwillingly to where they have come from. For some children, maybe a door will appear to them once again and that land will beckon them back to go to their real home. But for others, they are stuck. Stuck in a mundane world that doesn't understand them. This is a series of books by Seanan McGuire the Wayward Children. And this is a series of small novellas. 
each one of them featuring on the story of a different child that has gone through this experience and what they have lived through and what they're going to live through. The first book in the series is called Every Heart, a Doorway. And it is Nancy's story as when she comes to the school, she brings with her or ignites within her a darkness. A series of murders start happening at the school and Nancy and the rest of the children have to figure out who is trying to destroy the one safe place they have in the mundane world. These are beautiful, poetic, literary stories. Um, And for someone who loves children's literature and who loves fantasy children's literature, it really is a a wonderful take on the, the, the psychology of why we find those stories appealing. Why do children want to escape from the real world into a fantasy world? You can see it as a metaphor for being LGBTQ+. You can see it as a metaphor for escaping abuse. It's 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 a really beautiful, symbolic story that Seanan McGuire is telling in the first book. So if you are someone who enjoys a lot of metaphors, just like a ton of metaphors, tons of metaphors and symbols, flowery writing, and also novellas because they're very short. I believe this one is only 173 pages. So it's a nice sit down read that's really beautiful and wonderful and has fantastic writing. I would heartily recommend that you pick up the first book in the Wayward Child series by Shauna McGuire which has won, I think, rightfully so, all of the awards that it was nominated for. Take that, Virginia. Take that. That's going back to what we said earlier. You know how when the award winners go up, you're like, why? Why? (sighs) Well, what would a show about award winners be without a little bit of drama, without just like a teaspoon of drama? So we're bringing it there and that Virginia's wrong and I am right. But... We are so thankful that you have joined us. We hope that you maybe learned some new awards that you can follow up on or some fantastic new books that you can travel up and open to. Um, If you're ever looking for suggestions about different awards or want to find different award winners, you can definitely ask us at the library or uh, check out our website, which usually has the awards listed in there somewhere. And all right, my committee of readers, Can we agree, though, that this episode has come to an end? Award season closed, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And thank you from all of your book friends at the Port Moody Public Library. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. (laughs) 